In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain. I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, 27th of September. On the programme this morning, significant levels of sexual harassment in Ireland need to be addressed with initiatives across society and properly supported by the new agency responsible for Ireland's national strategy on domestic sexual and gender-based violence. We'll be talking to the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre this morning. The government has come in for criticism for inaction on addressing the high cost of energy in Ireland. Investigations are continuing this morning after three men were arrested following a significant seizure of drugs off the Cork coast yesterday. Landlords could pay less tax on rental income in an effort to persuade them to stay in the market under proposals put forward in advance of budget talks intensifying this week. And nearly one in five children say they find it difficult to stop playing video games. As always, you can contact us on the programme on WhatsApp 86 658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. First off, this morning, significant levels of sexual harassment in Ireland need to be addressed with initiatives across society and properly supported by the new agency responsible for the country's national strategy on domestic sexual and gender-based violence. That's according to the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, who made the comments that was following the release of statistics from the CSO, which found that 50% of those aged 18 to 24 experienced sexual harassment in the last 12 months. 15% of women experienced inappropriate physical contact in the last year and 50% of men experienced sexual harassment in the last year and did not disclose their experience. Well, Nolene Blackwell from the DRCC joins us this morning. Nolene, thanks for taking our call. Can we first of all deal with the definition for the purposes of this survey by the CSO, what they deem it to be? And for the benefit of our listeners, I'll just read it out. It's defined in the survey as unwanted behaviours that a person may have experienced in their daily life in the past 12 months, which made the person feel offended, humiliated or intimidated. Can I first of all put it to you that a definition of sexual harassment or bullying can be subjective, that your idea and my idea may differ greatly. Would that be a fair comment to make? 
Yeah, that, that, that is a fair comment. And also, the resources we have, the experience we have, can also make a difference in how you manage it. So that's, I actually think you put your finger on something really key, Alan, and that is that the whole area of sexual violence, particularly harassment, a lot of which is taken for granted in our society, it, it, it's in two bits. It is the action that's done, the harassment action, and it's also its impact on somebody. So, so if you have two different people, they can react quite differently to a crude sexual comment about their person. Um, but that, that doesn't make it all right, just because one person can deal with it better than somebody else, uh, just because somebody is better able to manage being groped. Uh, doesn't make it right. And also, the, what, uh, what I think the survey reminds us of is that that kind of behaviour, which isn't acceptable anyway, can have a terrible impact. It can be really harmful. And it can be more harmful for one person than another. So what we have to do in those cases, in the same way, if you smash somebody on their head, uh, their skull may be thicker or thinner and they may be able to deal with it in different ways. What, what, we, what this survey shows is that uh, you can have a situation, or, or whatever the person's situation, we must stop that kind of behaviour which might impact on somebody to the extent that they are deeply harmed, to the extent that they're very troubled, very humiliated. And I think if we could kind of shift our attitude to sexual harassment, okay. if, we, if we had... If people stop saying things that were humiliating and intimidating, uh, then we would. Yeah, some people would be more relieved than others, but we'd all be relieved. OK, well, well, can I just put it to you? And is it trite on my part to say that it's moronic, immature behaviour in the main, particularly from young men when it comes to sexual harassment in terms of the comments that they make? as opposed to the deviant behaviour of individuals who go out to specifically harass sexually and physically women. Is there a difference between yeah. the two? Yeah, but I, I think they're all on a spectrum um, because uh, there is a real, um, and even to call it moronic, I think, you know, it's nearly ignorant, and I mean that in the proper sense of the word, that people don't even realise the harm they're doing when they go out catcalling, when they go following somebody going home and just making comments about their person behind the back, where they um, where they touch them in, in their private parts in the pub or whatever. That can indeed be a result of just the way uh, we're all, people are brought up, uh, the way uh, young men feel that they have to live up to a certain image, because the truth is it tends to be men in general that are doing it, but it's not just young men who are doing it either. And then there is, like, so this goes across a whole spectrum from people who were uh, who were touched in a pub in their private place, which actually a lot of people seem to think you have to put up with, which is wrong, to a case where three percent of those who were surveyed felt that they had been stalked with a fear of sexual violence coming from that. So you know, in the past twelve months, three percent of those had had a real um, serious. Uh, harmful and malicious um, 
experience of being of, of feeling they were being stalked okay. with a fear of sexual violence. So, Nolene, what has changed? And I say it from my own experience. I'm of a generation where you grew up and you were told that you had to respect adults, you had to respect women. There's a certain manner in which you behave around individuals. So what has shifted so fundamentally? Now, I'm not saying for a moment that it didn't happen back in the day. It absolutely did. But it seems yes. to be an epidemic today. Well, I, I think what's happening, Alan, is that actually it's being noticed as well. And uh, in some ways, it is, it's clear from the survey that young adults aged 18 to 24, uh, they were the ones where half of them said they'd experienced sexual harassment in the past 12 months. Um, and and I, I think that there's a combination. Maybe it is happening more. The online experience certainly doesn't help along the way because people can be harassed a lot more uh, online or more, more deeply online. But I also think there is something about people recognising it and not tolerating it anymore. Because the, the interesting thing about this survey is, well, for me, there's lots of interesting things about it and indeed we will be looking at it for a long time. But one of the interesting things is the number of younger women who have said to me that it is great to see this called out now. Um, I was talking to a young mum yesterday who was saying, you know, when she just even five or six years ago, when she was going out and about in clubs and things, you, you simply didn't even remark on being groped in a, a disco by someone you didn't know, nor the sky over them. Uh, whereas, whereas if we name it, and if we name that different people react differently, to go back to your initial point, we can actually start losing the tolerance. And this is, I think, where this survey ties into the work that the government is doing at a national level, where they're trying to reduce the tolerance of sexual violence in our society. I do think that for years, people have been complaining about catcalling um, at, at night on the street or from construction sites, you know, with the stereotype always. People have been complaining about having to put up with groping when they're out in a pub or the rest of it. But we didn't really have the evidence the way we have it today. And we didn't have it so clear at uh, the, the range of things and the fact that this mm-hmm. is harmful behaviour. So, so I think what, what this survey has to kind of help us to understand is that Mostly men are the people who are carrying out this. So there's something about um, men of all ages, I would say, understanding that they don't, they're not entitled to talk to men or women in a okay. way that's sexually explicit without Let- their consent. They're, yeah. Let, let, me just, uh, let me just touch on social media and how much blame should be apportioned to social media when I consider individuals who I'm not even going to give them the oxygen to name them, and we know who we're talking about, yes. who peddle a narrative around how women should be treated by men and this is what you should or shouldn't be doing. And it strikes me, and I go back to the mor- moronic nature of people who get sucked in by these individuals, and that, that's exactly what it is, being sucked in, and they feel this is an acceptable way to do it. Questions yes. need to be raised in terms of monitoring and allowing these people a platform. Yeah, and, and then 
even if you if you can't stop people having the platform because of the nature of the web, uh, there does need to be regulation and uh, there has to be ways in which regulation allows people's uh, people who say things that are harmful to have that information taken down. But the other side of that as well is literally this September, this very month is, is the first time we've updated our um, curriculum in relation to, um, to relationships, healthy relationships for secondary schools. And it's just gone into the junior cycle this year. It'll go into the senior cycle next year. Because what you have to do is treat people how to deal with this. Even before social media, Media. The reality was we were all being groomed by our, by by um, songs, for instance, by by literature, by what we were reading, what we were seeing in magazines, and the rest of it. For those of us way before the internet, and you know, I still remember how influential those magazines were on me, uh, as like a long time ago. So, so you have to learn then how to read these, how to understand that the influencers where they are influencers, uh-huh. where they're talking that, uh, where, they're, where they're persuading uh, young people in a certain way that is abusive and aggressive. They have to learn to understand what it But surely, is. Nolan, that says a lot more about the individuals who engage with these so-called influencers that you have to question, like, why are they listening to them? Why can they not see what the real objective is of influencers, of, in, of people who are peddling their wares online? Yeah, and they're peddling their wares for very uh, for an awful lot of money as well, Alan. So you know they're making a living out of this and making a lot of money out of this. So, uh, so I I don't know. You see, I think where where you uh, shut one down, somebody else will come up as well because people would like a simple world where they can do what they like without understanding the consequences. And I think things like this survey, things like the the way in which we're trying to build in Ireland, where people don't tolerate abuse. I think those are the things that ultimately will tell. And I don't just um, say it's the children who have to hear this. Adults, their parents, the, the people who influence them every day have to understand that they don't have an entitlement to be abusive. They don't have entitlement to be uh, to 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 intimidate somebody else to harass them so there's so many people around there are the online influencers um, and something needs to be done there as well but actually every single person in their behavior you know we we can say it uh, to our young people we can say when 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 you go out you are not entitled to engage in harassing behaviour. And one of the things about this bit of, the CSO has done four modules of its survey so far. There's another one to come, maybe even two. Uh, But uh, in this one, the the thing that kind of is amazing when you stand back and look at it is about 60% of the harassment comes from total strangers. Well, whatever about somebody being engaged in some sort of joshing in a friend group or something like that, that total strangers feel that they are entitled to grope somebody, that they're entitled to make sexually explicit comments about them, that they're entitled to share and, their and private let me, images. Let, let me ask you then, Nolene, when this happens, are these individuals being called out by the individual who has had the sexual harassment perpetrated against them? In other words, women, do they say, hang on a second, this isn't right? Or do they just accept it? And are they so shocked at what at what has happened, they just tend to, to let it go? Well, well, that behaviour is so often embarrassing 
at best and humiliating and intimidating that it can be very, very difficult for somebody to have the presence of mind or to have the composure or to be okay uh, to call out the behaviour. And they may not even feel safe doing that. And that's why it takes a community. If, If somebody sees that happening on a bus, if somebody sees it happening to somebody else in the club, the sports club they're involved in, uh, to just be able to go and say to your friend who has engaged in that behaviour, that's not acceptable. We don't do that anymore here. That just don't do that again. And just so just on that, are a big part. yeah, on that. Before I let you go, uh, Nolene, is there an appetite on the part of individuals to stand up and say stop? This is not right because, you know, a week will not go by where you don't witness something that isn't quite right. right and you should be actually standing up. But there's potentially a fear because you'll say to yourself, not my business. Maybe if I do, you know, interfere in this, that there will be yeah. consequences for me. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it is that thing of nobody should put themselves in an unsafe position in order to deal with this. But sometimes you can go up to the person who was humiliated or who had that comment and mind them, in a sense, rather than than ignoring it. It may be that you could tell the bus driver rather than confronting the person engaging in the abusive behaviour. And I do think more and more at the very fact that half of the young adults who were surveyed identified sexual harassment. I do think they are more conscious of it. They're listening more carefully. They're hearing it in college. They'll start hearing it more in the schools and they will recognise it's abusive. So I've great, you know, I've great faith if we all get together, if we all just said, you know what, we'd like a more respectful society. Because as you say, you recognise it when you see it. We just don't know what to do about it. And I think we can change that culture of saying, I will do nothing. It's none of my business. It is actually because because if we allow sexual harassment to take place, even at a low grade level, it gives people the sense that they can get away with more. And that's okay. not right because more harm can be caused. We leave it there. That was the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Nolan Blackwell, joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The government has come in for criticism for inaction on addressing the high cost of energy in Ireland. Figures released in the period up to June found that uh, in around 424,000 homes were in arrears. The increase in arrears accord amongst both electricity and gas domestic customers having risen to 256,000 and 168,000 respectively. Sinn Féin spokesperson on environment and climate action Darren O'Rourke joins us this morning. Uh, Deputy, good morning. Thanks for taking the call. Before I get to that, can I just ask you to comment on the retrofitting grant on the basis of what the Banking and Payments Federation Ireland were saying about that and the affordability gap that exists. Yeah, I think it, it won't come as any surprise to, to people. Um, you know, and the, the Banking and Payment Federation of Ireland are the latest in a number of of groups, you know, Friends of the Earth, um, St. Vincent de Paul, Social Justice Ireland, indeed the Climate Change Advisory Council themselves have pointed to inequities and inaccessibility to the, the retrofitting programmes. Um, so it happens on two levels. One is, you know, you don't have the upfront uh, money to avail of the significant grant. Um, so it means that the, the grant is really just there for, for those who, who have money or you're not eligible or you're on a long waiting list for the free limited government scheme. Um, 
so something has to be done to address that. Um, I think it, it does call into question whether we're going to meet those retrofitting targets, okay, 500,000 B2s. To, yeah, to I'm, I'm just looking at the figures here, Darren. I mean, a household with cash available to them can access up to 25,000 of taxpayer-funded grants for what they call a deep retrofit. But when you look at basics such as attic insulation or wall insulation, very difficult for some householders to be able to get money to match the grant. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, and I think the issue of accessibility is is, uh, is one that is going to have to be addressed. Now, Sinn Féin, we, we've published an alternative uh, an alternative uh, you know in fairness we said from go- to government from from the outset you know this is really important work uh, it's important that we have an industry responding to it and that can deliver it it's important that we have ambitious targets and that we we roll out a, a program and reduce the emissions in the residential sector but it has to be done in a fair way that targets the the poorest coldest homes that lifts people like for example it, it seems really important to us as a party that an objective of the retrofitting program would be to lift people out of energy poverty, to reduce their, their bills and to ensure that they can keep their head above, above water. That's not a, a central theme of the, of the government's program. Mm. And as a result of that, what you actually have is a massive transfer of wealth. You know, lots of people contributing by carbon taxes to the retrofitting fund, but not being in a position to draw down on it. Whilst those, you know, they may be in warmer homes to start off with, but they, because they have access to money, they can avail of those grants and get the, get the works done. They, they can, but the, there will be that sense of inequity amongst the individuals who have perhaps not a whole lot of money, but more money than those that don't. And they see those who don't getting the full whack done to the house where those uh, will have to well, not, pony up yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, so, 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 so another piece, I suppose, in relation to it is um, like the free scheme is not a deep retrofit scheme. The free scheme is a, a shallow retrofit. So there, there, you know, there's a, a tiny fraction of those on the, the, the free scheme that are getting a, a deep retrofit. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different approach there. And, and there's an argument that it, that it should be uh, more extensive across the board. What, what we would like to see is a, is an income-based scheme that you get uh, significant uh, uh, support to carry out this works, but it's based on the household income, based on on uh, um, on, on what you have. So you you know you ask people who have more to pay a little bit more, and those who have less they pay a little bit less. And by that approach, and also by taking an area by area approach, um, that you 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 use the resources that you have as efficiently and as fair as possible. The other thing I think which is important, and the climate change advice. Advisory Council have looked for it as well. There should be a dedicated scheme for people who are born in turf and who are born in sticks and who are born in coal, so born in solid fuels. Um, you know, like the summer before last, we, we had a, 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 a hot political debate in relation to the burning of turf and really to encourage people to transition uh, those who want to there should be supports for them to, for them to do it rather than you know just introducing punitive measures so there's a lot to be to be improved on on the go- the, the government's retrofit plan I mean, we we talk about transitioning there but the the fact of the matter is that we have to and we have to by law stop burning fuels that are impacting number 1 the health of individuals and number 2 the environment there's no oversight uh, on the part of local authorities to stamp that out. But that is a measure that we all should, must take. 
immediately in order to try and get to those targets in 2030, plus other things that we we have to do. This transitioning thing, that could go on forever. Yeah, and, and and I think you know, if, if for me, it really is about uh, you know appealing to the to the hearts and minds of people. I think you know, uh, um, uh, many people will want that comfort. They want warmer homes. They want lower electricity bills. Um, I do, you know, I do appreciate that some people have a an emotional attachment to to turf and to uh, um, and to solid solid fuels. Um, but the vast majority of people, if you offer them the opportunity of flicking a switch on the wall compared to going out and, and doing back brick and working on the on the bog over the over the summer and, and, and harvesting turf, um they'll opt for the switch okay. on, on, on the wall. Um so so you know, I, I think it is about recognising our 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 traditions and cultures, but also encouraging people and supporting those people who who are putting their hands up and want to to make that switch uh, to support them to do it, rather than heaping more additional taxes. Right. Let's get then to the uh, reason we were talking here this morning. That's in relation to the figures which came out showing that there is a huge number of people who are now are in arrears in terms of their electricity and their heating costs, and that presumably is as a result of the cost of living measures. Presumably those figures would be significantly higher were it not for the fact that the government intervened last year with cost of living payments for energy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you might, uh, that, that, that's uh, sure, surely the case. And I think, in, in fact, if you track back month on month the, the numbers in arrears, you can actually see the impact of the the 200 euros the 200 euros the 200 euros um uh, uh but what 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 the figures also say is that um a growing number of people are falling further and further behind and falling into arrears and you know we listen to the mood music for for, for the the winter ahead and we're not sure what the what the support will be but underlying all of this and you know we have different proposals from government in terms of supporting people with the, the high cost of electricity but a fundamental difference between Sinn Féin and the government is we want to address the root cause. In addition to supporting people, we want to address the root cause of the high cost of electricity in, in Ireland. And yeah, but you know, Darren, that's not going to be done overnight and we're facing into a problem where winter's down the road. Thankfully, the weather is good, but the heat will be switched on in the next month or so. So it's now we need to do it. Government are going to give us, if we're to believe them, around €200 Euro subvention out of the budget to get us through. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I don't think that will be enough for people. But also, you know, this this suggestion that we we ignore the underlying causes and it's just something that's there. I think it's it's a major major. So the the problem that people in Ireland have at the minute is that they are an outlier in Europe. Uh, we have the highest or the third highest cost of electricity in Europe, eighty depending on what way you, you measure it, eighty uh, percent above the EU average, an additional thousand euros a year on our electricity bill. And the question is why? And we can point to uh, a number of government failures, policy failures that contribute to that high cost of electricity. So unless that is addressed, um, a couple of hundred euros here or there will, 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 will do nothing in truth. We'll be left with record high bills mm. for, for, for forever. Um, but as again, and, as, and as, so, as I say, you can't or the government can't be seen to be meddling in the affairs of business in the country because 
it's not something that is an attractive proposition for other organisations to come into this country and do business if they know the government will interfere unnecessarily. Yeah, but 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 aside, aside from that, I think you're you're talking about regulation here. But like for example, last night. The, well, I'm not just reason- talking about regulation. I'm talking about a government deciding. Hang on a second. Things are tight for uh, the electorate, so we're going after you guys for X over a period of time in order to ameliorate the difficulties that the consumer is facing. They can't be doing that. So the, the high cost of electricity in Ireland is due to a number of, of factors. Um, I, I do believe we need stronger regulation and oversight of the energy companies, but also it's due to the fact that our planning system is a basket case. It's due to the fact that the government and its agencies cannot deliver generation capacity. They can't deliver power stations. In fact, there's a government inquiry in relation to that, the McCarthy Report, which the the minister is sitting on and and won't publish. Um, The high cost of electricity is because we don't, uh, is partially uh, uh, contributed because we're so dependent on gas. Okay, Darren, Um, I'm sorry, I'm I'm really sorry for cutting across you there, but time has run away with me, but we will take this conversation up again. That was Darren O'Rourke, the Sinn Féin spokesperson on the Environment and Climate Action, joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Investigations are continuing this morning after three men were arrested following a significant seizure of drugs off the Cork coast yesterday. The Naval Service Guard, the Army Ranger Wing, boarded a cargo vessel which was uh, attempting to sail into international waters. The MV Matthew was brought to Cork Harbour where search teams discovered a large quantity of drugs. And Stephen Breen is crime editor with the Irish Sun and joins us this morning. Morning, Stephen. Um, I want to ask you, first of all, are we any closer to understanding what is the value of this drugs haul? Well, the vessel, the MV Matthew, is still being inspected by the Guard of National Drugs, the Organised Crime Bureau and Revenue uh, Officers. At the moment, the initial belief was that the the figure would be 130 million. That must be one of the biggest in the history of the state, is it? It is, absolutely, but there's a possibility the figure could rise to 150 million uh, euros worth of cocaine, so it is uh, significant. It has caused massive disruption to a Colombian drug cartel who were using this uh, specific uh, smuggling route to bring drugs to the, the coast of Ireland where other vessels were going to this ship then taking cocaine from that ship and then sailing on to other European countries. So it is a massive investigation involving Ireland, France, the UK, and indeed the DEA in America. Now, I presume this was not one of those serendipitous uh, discoveries. This was a ship that was being tracked by international forces Mm. that ended up then in Ireland and was being closely watched. Yeah, but I don't think it's any coincidence that the, the DEA uh, re- had representatives in Ireland uh, last month and they were meeting with the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. You had a multi-agency approach to this investigation. I think w- when you look at the fact that this ship, uh, the MV Matthew, is being tracked from South Africa or South America, the, um, the authorities were aware of its movements. They were aware that it came to Ireland. And when it was in Irish waters over the course of the weekend, a huge investigation was undertaken involving Revenue and Naval Service and the, the Guard of National Drugs Organised Crime Bureau. So they were watching this ship, but also of interest was a trawler, which they believed was part of this criminal enterprise. And that small trawler uh, was suspected of going to meet the MV Matthew uh, just off the coast of Wexford. But obviously that ran aground. It hit a sandbank, so that enterprise didn't proceed. So then the Guardi obviously were aware of that case where they... they um, 
They rescued two individuals who were subsequently arrested and then they focused and switched to the MV Matthew. And that's when the, the Army Ranger Wing uh, boarded that ship yesterday. Now, just on that uh, particular note, the Army Ranger Wing, that was a first for them to be engaged in this type of operation, wasn't it? It was. I mean, the train for this type of operation, uh, they're very well uh, skilled in this area, but it's the first time where they've had to utilise those skills in a very fast-moving uh, environment, a very live operation. It is something that you probably see in the film as well. And, you know, as this was taking place in this ship, you could clearly see from the video that the MV Matthew was trying to uh, escape, was trying to reach international waters. But the Army Ranger Wing moved very swiftly, uh, got onto that ship, had that ship secured within minutes. And obviously, once they had the ship secured, you had officers from the Revenue and the Guard of National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau who were able to go on the ship and then indeed have a look around the ship and initial inspection find uh, the large and significant amount of drugs. So it, it was extraordinary. Stephen, can I ask you, can you confirm reports that uh, shots, warning shots were fired by the Navy when the tanker tried to go to international waters? Yes, that's correct. So when the the, uh, the Army Ranger Wing were approaching, obviously they were using helicopters and they were able to sail down onto the ship. You know, it was clear that that ship, the MV uh, Matthew, was trying to escape, was trying to reach international waters. And, and as a result of that, you had the Naval Service then firing warning shots to that ship. You know, if they did proceed with their actions, you know, this is what the, the ship was capable of. So it was just a warning to those on board that uh, that there was a serious concern that the, uh, the, the Naval Service did have the right to use uh, force if necessary so, uh, and that's why the ship was uh, subsequently secured because it couldn't respond you know, to the, the threat posed by the naval ship. Okay, Stephen, before I let you go I just want to ask you a little bit about the um, GRA and the dispute they were in over rostering with the Garda Commissioner and I suppose that meeting which occurred and the subsequent statement from it where they said uh, the meeting was a complete waste of time and I now feel that the GRA's relationship with him as in the Garda Commissioner is in many ways irreparable. That's pretty serious. I mean, we know the relationship is more than strained in light of the vote that we had a couple of weeks ago, but for a statement of that nature to come out when there was negotiations around the roster doesn't augur well. Oh, it doesn't, and indeed we'll know the answer and the response uh, to the meeting that the GRA had yesterday when they had their special delegates conference today uh, in Kilkenny. They are at their wit's end. They are disillusioned at the approach taken by the Garda Commissioner. And now what they have on the table following that meeting yesterday, which they described as a waste of time, they're trying to look at different areas and different uh, options open to them. And, and that could be, for example, adopting a work-to-rule approach you know, and not engaging in duties that they're not obliged to do. Um, maybe looking at uh, not working on overtime on targeted days, uh, even refusal to drive patrol cars by people who are not trained. So according to the GRA, if nothing is off the table, in terms of their response to the Commissioner's uh, endeavour to try and uh, maintain the, the new roster which comes out on November the 6th. So it, it really is a difficult time for the organisation and we just have to wait to see what their next move will be. Well, are you of the view, and they have said this themselves, albeit they didn't spell it out, that they're not really prepared to budge on the roster in terms of what they are proposing? Is there any real room? Well, I, I spoke to a senior DRA official just morning and, and they say look they their priority is that they don't want to let their, the public down but you know and there have been a lot of high level negotiations taking place behind the scenes and when they had that meeting yesterday the hope was that there could be some kind of compromise but when they went into that meeting with the commissioner you know there was just no movement whatsoever the commissioner is steadfast and determined 
in adopting and implementing that new roster which comes into place. And I think you have to think of the human side of this as well for frontline guard event. I had a text this morning from an individual whose uh, relative is suffering from cancer and they're concerned that with childcare, you know, because of the new roster, it's going to impact on family life and people are left with no option but to uh, resign. So it just seems to be a, a breaking point. The negotiations between the GRA and the commissioner are in, in deadlock and even with the Workplace Relations Commission, any type of arbitrary uh, negotiation there or any type of diplomacy, it's just uh, at, at the end of that process now. So it's just a waiting game to see what sort of strategy the GRA adopts. And they presumably view Drew Harris, the commissioner, as a lame duck, particularly in light of that vote. He's going nowhere, but the reality is if you don't have the confidence of those that you preside over, this is not going to end well. It's not going to end well, and someone's going to have to budge. And Indeed, when I spoke to the GRA this morning, they were talking about the, the high-level negotiations that they were having with government officials as well, in the hope that there could be some kind of compromise reached, but in the hope that maybe perhaps someone in government or the Department of Justice could engage in negotiations with the commissioner to try and reach some kind of uh, breakthrough or try and reach some kind of uh, compromise. That hasn't happened, so the GRA are, are resolute and okay. they are determined to see this through. Very good. Stephen Brain, Crime Editor with the Irish Sun. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The Integration Minister says he can't rule out the use of tented accommodation for refugees this winter. The Department of Integration currently uses tents when accommodation options are low. Recently, Ukrainian refugees were moved into tented accommodation at the site of Electric Picnic in Stradbally in County Leash. Minister Roderick O'Gorman says the state will source alternatives where possible. Well, joining us this morning is John Lannan, CEO of Durris, the Limerick-based human rights and migrant support non-governmental organisation. Uh, John, good morning. You accept perhaps that the optics don't look great from the perspective of those people who find themselves in temporary accommodation are calling on the government to provide them with funding to give them more permanent accommodation, but yet we can find a billion to try and alleviate the plight of um, Ukrainian refugees. Do you understand that those optics don't look too good? First of all, I'd have to say that we need a housing policy in this country that provides housing for all. That includes Irish people who are in homeless situations or emergency accommodation, um, international protection applicants who are, I fear, from wars and persecutions around the world, and indeed for people from Ukraine as well. Because we have to remember that there's a war still ongoing in Ukraine. People have no option but to get out of the country first of all and then it's not possible in many cases in most cases for them to return to their homes so look i think we we're coming into winter now it's very upsetting to know that there are people in tents um in stradbally who have come here from the war and we hope that that's only a very temporary situation and we can move them out of those tents but is that a realistic prospect when you consider the number of occasions which the government and the authorities in the Ukraine have stated to people fleeing persecution and war that perhaps Ireland is not the best proposition because we can't provide the facilities that are required? I mean, if you look at the figure, we've 70,000 and it's increasing by 550 people per week. Nobody wants to turn away people fleeing war, but nobody wants to see them living in tented temporary accommodation. 
No, indeed, and you're right that nobody wants to um, turn people away as they arrive from the war, and we do have obligations now under the Temporary Protection Directive that has been extended for another year. People will continue to arrive here. Um, There is additional capacity around the country in terms of accommodation that is at least better than tents. I don't know if the problem is capacity within the Department of Children to bring it on stream or if there are other reasons that it's not in use, but I think we need to ensure that whatever is available in the short term is brought into use. We also need to ensure that we're looking to the the medium term, I'd say, because the um, the situation needs to change over time to ensure that we can move beyond tense and also to ensure that we can address the over-reliance on the hospitality sector at the moment for um, people who have escaped from Ukraine. Do you accept that we've reached capacity when it comes to um, providing shelter for people fleeing the war in Ukraine. That's aside from those who are seeking international protection, which is a different story. Those figures have increased uh, phenomenally since 2022. But just dealing with the Ukrainian situation, have we reached capacity there? I don't believe we've reached capacity. I'll accept that it's um, been very challenging for the Department of Children. They've done phenomenal work to find accommodation for the tens of thousands of people that they have been able to provide for over the last year and a half. But people are continuing to arrive. If you look at the situation in Ireland compared to some of the countries that are um, in immediate proximity to Ukraine, you know, we have much smaller numbers coming here. But we've got to find ways, as I said, that we can ensure that we've got a housing policy which um, addresses the housing needs of everybody here because this cannot and should not be a situation where there's competition for accommodation or housing. Everybody needs to be provided for, whether they're Irish or Ukrainian or from some other part of the world. Now, that budget, the supplementary estimate of a billion being provided by the Department of Children and Integration, that obviously comes out of Central Exchequer. Are you aware, do we get subvented in any shape or form from Europe well, um, first of all, so the, the supplementary estimate um, that, that was announced was um, to continue to support the, the Department of Children in meeting costs associated with accommodating um, people from Ukraine, but also from um, other parts of the world. Um, we don't know the exact spend until the revised estimates are available. There is ongoing need, the extent to which we are supported from Europe financially, um, is is something that I, I'm not aware of. We don't have the figures on that. I know that we have our obligations. We have to find the money to be able to meet those obligations to international protection applicants, but also to um, people from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And look, this has been a massive undertaking by the Irish government in terms of what they've done so far to accommodate so many people. But we also have to remember in the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That there has been huge positive response all around the country from communities, from groups who have come to the assistance of people. Even Strad Valley right now, there are locals that are doing phenomenal work to support the people in those tents in the cold, wet days. Okay, can, can I perhaps ask you to comment as well on the figures when it comes to international protection that people require in this country? That figure has risen from 8,600 in January 22 to 23,200 today. That's compounding the problems that we're already facing, John. So there has been an increase in the number of people um, coming to Ireland seeking international protection and indeed the estimates that the white paper um, on ending direct provision that was produced in 2021 um, were out of date very quickly because of the, the increase in numbers. One of the issues that's compounding the problem now is the number of people who are still stuck in direct provision because they cannot find um, housing or accommodation that's affordable in order to move out. So there are over 5,000 people who have their papers, have been granted international protection or leave to remain, but they can't find anywhere to live. So again, we're back to the overarching housing crisis that we've got in the country, the need to be able to respond to that. We need to be able to find solutions for the midterm, like modular homes, the rapid bills that have already been put in place, one of them in Cork that's running very successfully. Others are planned. We need to do quite a lot more of that. But we also need to look at the broader issues that we've got around housing and the availability Mm -hmm. of affordable and social housing. We all accept that the government struggled initially when this crisis crisis was foisted upon them, something which was completely out of their control and they had to try and react as best they could. But we are in a situation where this has become a protracted uh, issue to be dealt with by government. How do you believe they have been coping and, more importantly, dealing with putting the necessary measures in place? The government responded very constructively and very positively when people started to arrive from Ukraine as a result of the um, full-scale invasion in February 2022. Very quickly, people were able to get PPS numbers to get medical cards and accommodation was found in general for people. As time went on, the accommodation challenge has become more difficult. We find that there are, through our work, that increasingly there are additional needs of people who have been traumatised, who have escaped from the war, who need supports here. They also need access to more 
English language classes so that, that people can get into employment um, or, or further education. And bear in mind that as time goes on, many families um, will have their children in schools here, will have to look at the ongoing situation in their country, will have to make a decision as to whether they stay here or go back to Ukraine if or when the war ends. But as we know, there is no end in sight to an end to the war yet. People still have to remain in Ireland. We have to continue to support them in terms of access to all of the services that should be available to all of us. But I'd also have to say that in terms of the... um, the the manner in which you respond to people seeking protection. We do have inequities in the system and we have to ensure that international protection applicants who are um, living in direct provision, who have to survive for years in many cases on less than €39 a week, are treated with the same level of support as people okay. coming from Ukraine. Let me just ask you finally, um, John, you witnessed the events which occurred outside the door last week and the right-wing chants by individuals saying things such as Ireland for the Irish, etc. Are you noting an increase or any hostility for that matter in relation to whether it be Ukrainians or people seeking international protection in this country? There is no doubt that there is organised far-right activity in Ireland now, and we see that through the um, the um, attacks, I would say, um, I wouldn't say they were protests, they were verbal attacks on um, centres that would have been used to accommodate refugees. We see harassment and intimidation of library staff. We see people denying um, trans people their rights um, as well through through a lot of the discourse that's happening right now. This is something that the Gardaí have to deal with. This is something that we have to be aware of in the country. We have to ensure that we continue to do what we've always done in Ireland, which is to uh, extend a welcoming hand to people from anywhere in the world and to ensure that everybody is... Um, is, is welcomed in our communities, um, that rights are respected. But we've had such welcomes all around the world through the generations. We need to ensure that we continue to do that because we, we rely on people from other parts of the world, in our health service, in our shops, in our hospitality sector. We have to ensure that we continue to maintain the level of respect okay. that we've always shown for people from everywhere in the world. Very good. Uh, John Lannan of Doris, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Uh, I don't know about you, I think I might be missing something here. I went out to get a, a drink of water just at the break there. There's no storm out there. <laughs> As it bypassed us. Well, I was speaking to somebody in the south of the country earlier and said it's pretty grim. So maybe it's just not arrived here yet. One in five full-time workers in Ireland aren't making enough money to cover the vital expenses needed to live and work here. That's according to the Living Wage Technical Group, which says the ideal living wage has jumped to €14.80 per hour because of the cost of living crisis. The minimum wage is said to increase to €12.70 in 2024, but this is still over €2 less than what is needed in order to cover basic costs. 
in the economy today. Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland, joins us this morning. Colette, thanks for taking our call. That figure of 1480, one could say that it's artificially inflated because of inflation and the cost of living crisis. We've reached a peak of inflation. It's coming down. Therefore, the cost of living will come down. Therefore, that 14 euro 80 will come down. That's that's a reasonable uh, diagnosis of the situation. Not at all, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> okay, well, well, let's let's hear your prognosis. Bat, um, so I suppose there's nothing artificial about the fact that people are experiencing higher living costs. And as for inflation, um, it's a common misconception that inflation is coming down. It, 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 that's not the case. The rate by which costs are rising is starting to fall. But costs are still rising. So they rose by an average of about 8% last year. They're going to rise by an average of about 4 to 5% this year. But we're not seeing deflation. We're not seeing costs actually drop. Um, what we're seeing is the, the, the level of increase starting to taper off. But it is, be very, very clear about this, it is still increasing. Um, so unfortunately, while that is continuing to happen, um, the living wage needs to meet that. And what this living wage is based on, that €14.80, Euro is the actual cost of living. It's your basic um, standard. So it's not, we're not talking, you know, fancy holidays. We're not talking fast cars. We're literally talking about a basic standard of living, of what it, it, it takes to, to feed yourself, okay. to heat your home, to, to have a roof over your head. And while, you know, th- th- those costs have risen and we've seen certainly energy costs and food costs have risen um, significantly, like we're talking over 20% there, other costs are also rising. So personal care and clothes. And, you know, nobody would deny someone that. They're all essentials for people. Um, so they are continuing to rise. So the living wage continues to rise. OK, well, let me but bring let me look at it from maybe a, a different angle then, Colette. Taking into account the measures which we expect to be introduced in the budget to help those on the margins who are finding it difficult because of the cost of living crisis, they will go a long way to bridge the gap. They'll go some of the way to bridge the gap temporarily. So what we saw last year and what we expect to see again this year in the budget is um, a kind of a basic package of about five billion we expect to see a four billion. This is what's being reported: a, a four billion package for one-off measures, and then a tax package of about one point one billion. Those one-off measures really did, you know, they were targeted for the most part at people who were, as you say, on the margins. But unfortunately, they disappeared very quickly. So when you talk about one-off measures, as uh, as a, I suppose as a response to a cost of living crisis. One doesn't match the other. If you get an increase in one month, that's great and it's really useful for you in that month. If you get that you know, energy credit or that double payment in your social welfare, that's really, really you know, useful to you within that time. But once that's gone, you still have that cost of living crisis. You still have next month's bills. You still have this week's shopping. Um, so what we want to see is more sustained measures and things that would really actually help with the living wage are things like really tackling the housing crisis, the affordability crisis. In fact, for the last number of years, the the Living Wage Technical Group has been highlighting the fact that rents in particular increasing is having a huge impact on the living wage. So what we would like to see is real measures being addressed around affordability on that, because that would actually moderate this, this increase.
One almost gets the sense that the government is a basket case in terms of the way they're managing the economy. If we're listening to organisations such as yourselves and so many other organisations looking for cash and money and coming up with resolutions and plans in order to try and get that money. Has it been a disastrous uh, management of the of the economy by the government? Um, I think it has been, it hasn't been disastrous. I mean, the, the government are doing exactly what they intend to do. and their Which is manage the economy in a prudent manner to put um, us on a sound ooh, footing, though, Colette, you know. Not necessarily. I mean, it's it, well, it's economy above everything else. It's economy above society. So if we want to see a more equal society, you know, we stop punishing the poor, for example. You know, when we talk about things like social cohesion, we talk about things like, programs that support those who are on the margins. We talk about income adequacy to rise people out of poverty. As of 2022, we have 671,000 people living in poverty. We have over 100,000 people who are in work who are below the poverty line. And as you said yourself, um, around one in five full-time, not even part-time, full-time workers earn below the living wage. These are things that government actually really could address, but hasn't so far. So we're urging government to really make moves on this. When the government published, um, and they they gave it to the Low Pay Commission, and they they commissioned a report uh, out of Minute, and they published their own living wage, it's significantly below uh, the actual real cost of living um, and the real cost of a a living wage, as determined by the reference budget, the actual cost of living. Um, But when they published it, they published a roadmap of four years. We proposed at the time, and this is Social Justice Ireland as opposed to the Living Wage Technical Group, we proposed at the time that government would introduce something like a, an employment wage subsidy scheme like we had in the pandemic to support smaller businesses who couldn't afford it right away, but if they could prove that over that four-year period that they would get there, to support them up front to actually pay their okay. workers enough well, well, to earn a living wage. Look, Colette, we... The question I put time and time again is it has to be paid for and the response I get, yes, well, the exchequer is awash with money. It's not. So who's going to pay for it? The squeeze middle, as always? You won't get that response from me, actually. Um, so, you know, we we are awash with money at the moment, but that's temporary. You know, we're looking at about three years. We're looking at about 70 billion um, and things do need to be invested in. Absolutely. We would be calling for half of that to be invested in infrastructure. So things like housing, um, things like, you know, energy infrastructure, because we've seen what happens when our energy is insecure. Um and things like, you know, human rights, ODA, that type of thing, overseas development aid. But the rest of it, you know, we agree there should be some fiscal prudence. Absolutely. What we call on for, you know, I suppose, the payment of the kind of current expenditure, the ongoing expenditure, is an increase in taxation. Not an increase in income tax, but an increase in the tax base. And this is something that ourselves that the European Commission, that the Commission on Taxation and Welfare have all called for. Um, And what that means is things like environmental taxes. So the CSO published a report during the week, last week, um, that said that there's there's almost three billion being foregone in subsidies to fossil fuel companies and fossil fuel extraction. So we'd like to see that brought back into as part of the tax package rather than giving these tax exemptions. We want to see things like financial transactions taxes. So we know, for example, that it's a, it's a Tobin tax. There was a whole publication on it donkey's years ago um, around taxing 
you know, in, inter, or sorry, international markets, those those kinds of transactions, we'd like to see those being brought in. Uh, Colette, um, I'm just so conscious there's, there's that... There's more that's, that can be done yeah. on the taxation side that would provide a kind of a stable base for increased current expenditure in addition to the windfall that we're seeing that could be invested um, more in a more targeted way in things like housing, okay. healthcare, public transport and energy. Now, I'm just conscious uh, time's against us here, but perhaps you can tell us what poverty in Ireland looks like today? Because one's definition is completely different to somebody else's. To me, poverty is, you know, somebody who can't access three square meals a day. They can't put a roof over their head. They can't avail of medical uh, facilities, things like that. Is, is that the Ireland of today when it comes to poverty? Well, that's, that's what you describe there as deprivation. So there's two definitions um, that are widely used, and they're both produced under what's called a European-wide survey, the Survey on Income and Living Conditions. Uh, the 671,000 people who are living in poverty or at risk of poverty are those who live below the, I suppose it, it's, it's the poverty line. And how that's calculated is if you took, you know, somebody who's on the very lowest income and you put everybody in a line to the very highest income, the person in the middle is the median, 60% of their wages is the poverty line. So anyone living below that is at risk of poverty. And there are 671,000 people, including almost 200,000 children, uh, who are living below the poverty line. So that's the kind of bare uh, definition there. But then we have more who are living in deprivation. So almost 18% of the population are living in deprivation. That means that they are unable to pay for two out of a list of 11 things. And those things include a strong pair of shoes, a, a, a strong coat, to be able to replace worn out furniture, to be able to have a social outing uh, once a month, to be able to eat meat or a, a vegetarian equivalent once a week. They're the types of things. And there, is, there are more people who are going without than those who are at risk of poverty. And this is across all social stratas. Absolutely, absolutely. But obviously those who are on lower incomes would have a a higher poverty risk. So how has it got to the point in a modern country like Ireland that we have such a sizable number of people who come under that definition of deprivation? Because government has made choices in subsequent budgets, uh, budgets <coughs> excuse me, um, and it looks likely that they're going to make similar choices this time, that they prioritise those on higher incomes over those who are in serious need. And where do we strike the balance? Because one has to remember, you know, a country has to pay for essential services. That comes out of taxation on on employees. And we can't be turning the screw on those employees all the time. Oh, 100%. I mean, we are are completely over-reliant on three forms of tax. Income tax, VAT, and corporation tax. Corporation taxes were starting to see dampen down a little bit. There was a billion under what we expected in August compared to the previous year. Um, what we're seeing in terms of, of income tax, you've got almost one in every fiver that's gathered by the exchequer is income taxation. Uh, we're not advocating for, for income tax changes, certainly not on your kind of your middle or standard workers. Those who are on very high incomes, absolutely. Um, but those who are on your kind of basic, not at all. Um, and then there's the, the VAT, which is a, it's a regressive tax. Any of those kind of those, those supply taxes are, are regressive in that they disproportionately um, they're, they're disproportionately uh, paid by those who are on lower incomes. And what I mean by that is that if you are on a lower income, you're more likely to pay more of that income 
in VAT than if you're on hire okay. because it comes with everything that you pay for. What we're looking for is to expand the tax base and to increase taxation in that way. So again, things like closing down tax loopholes um, and tax expenditures, things like environmental taxes, things like financial transaction taxes, things like better taxation around land land hoarding and land use. Okay, not wanting to to second guess what the Minister is going to do on Budget Day, but we have a fair idea what's coming down the track. And on the basis of what we know, without any rabbits being pulled out of the hat on the day, if we're having this conversation in 12 months' time, will we be having the same conversation? My fear, Alan, is that we will. Um, it is the absolute definition of madness to do the same thing and expect a different outcome, but that is unfortunately what the government seemed to be going to do with Budget 24. Um, we warned, as did others, including DSRI, following Budget 23 last year, that once those one-off payments were gone, this was going to be a very regressive budget. It will disproportionately benefit higher income earners and something more was going to be needed. And that proved right. What happened was we saw government give the one-off payments in Budget 23 and then have to give more one-off payments in February this year. That's turning out to be more expensive for government and it looks likely, unfortunately, that they're going to do the same again. OK, Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, nearly one in five children say they find it difficult to stop playing video games. Research by Bernardo's has found 18% of children in third to sixth class surveyed say they always are often find it hard to stop, while half say they've seen mean messages sent through online gaming. Children also describe feeling a wide range of physical effects after gaming, including tiredness, sore eyes and stomach pains. Richard Phillips is Assistant Director of Children's Services with Barnardos and joins us this morning. Um, Richard, we can jump straight to the conclusion here. Not a problem of the child. It's the parents who facilitate it, allow their children to use these gaming uh, devices without any oversight. Clearly, the, the blame rests with them. Well, I mean, I wouldn't even suggest blame as opposed to it, it underscores the importance of parents actually taking an interest in what their children are engaging with. You know, we've been um, surveying children all this you know, through the course of this year. And by the way, thank you for having me online um, to talk about this. Uh, we're very interested in the response to this uh, gaming report. I think the results probably are not that much of a surprise to anyone who's familiar with gaming, but it really uh, has demonstrated the value it is in parents in particular, understanding what it is the kids are engaging with. You know, on the one hand, kids have told us these are really compelling and engaging games. They find them fun. They find that it allows them to connect with others online. Um, and, and that's why they play. But unsurprisingly, it also means that nearly one in five finds it difficult to stop. And unsurprisingly, considering that, then a number of children, about one in seven, are saying that they don't get enough sleep um, because of the gaming that they're doing. Um, we're we're so, almost through the looking glass on this, and I say that in the context of devices and social media and online is almost become an extension of one's being. I'm not just talking about children, I'm talking about mm-hmm. adults as well. And it's become the acceptable norm. So why should we be surprised? Why should we try to understand why children and adults are suffering from poor mental health when their lives revolve around these devices and online and social media? Well, exactly. I mean, I think the devices have become part and partial of all of our lives uh, and you know we, we find ourselves 
on the bus or, you know, wherever we are, looking at our phone and relying on the devices. And we need to admit they have transformed our lives. And in many cases, that has been great. Um, but it's not surprising that we're therefore affected by, you know, the, the underbelly, the negative effects that come with them. Um, and it's a whole new skill set that we need to learn and we need to help our children to learn you know, regulating, managing our time. Now, mind. looking at the figures here, um, Richard, uh, let's deal with this one first. Some of the children in my class are distracted, tired in my class due to spending time gaming the night before. Strongly agree, 45%. Agree, 36%. We're raising a nation of zombies in, in the classroom that they're just not engaging. They're not capable of doing anything that is mentally dexteric, uh, mentally uh, dexterous mm-hmm. that they need to do because they're just not be in a position to be able to, to concentrate. Yeah, I mean, teachers are clearly, and we're hearing it across the board, teachers are saying that they are finding it very difficult helping children hold their concentration in class. And it's because of, you know, their experiences uh, online and the time they're spending either on their smartphone or on gaming or another in other ways, engaging online. And certainly, I think we need to be creative about coming up with ways to help children manage that and also to manage our children's time online ourselves. You know, it's it's a parental responsibility as well as a skill we need to teach our children. Now, going to parental responsibility, if we look at the survey and we talk about homework, some of the children in my class are not engaged with homework due to gaming. Agree, 34%. Disagree, 36%. So one would presume perhaps parents are keeping an eye on little Johnny or Mary at home, watching that they are doing their homework and they're taking the eye to an extent off social media, off devices, off gaming. Is that a fair assessment on, on extrapolation of those figures? Um, I think so. I, you know, it's, it's, there's always been distractions that have pulled children away from homework. This is another one of them. Um, it's very compelling and it's a big one. I don't want to minimise that, but it doesn't change the overall picture that for parents um, making sure that your children are engaged in, in school and then are engaged with the homework and, and managing how much they're involved in that is, is, is an important factor. I'm at a loss to try and understand the figure which uh, talks about um, the children who have had a positive experience while gaming. Agree 50%, strongly agree 13%. Positive experience, I presume, means entertainment factor that they get from it, is it? Well, yes. I mean, games, in a nutshell, are games. They're entertaining, they're compelling, they're engaging. Um, You know, children don't play games because they want to suffer. They play games because they find them entertaining and fun. Uh, And I think it's really important not to forget that they're games and they're fun, even when becoming more and more aware of, you know, the, the potential negatives that come with them. Now, the real red flag in all of this is probably the last response where some of the children in my class would say they are addicted to gaming. Strongly agree, 24 agree, 34%, 34%, more than half. That's worrying. Yeah, I think it's something we really need to pay attention to. Um, you know, the games are designed to be compelling. They're designed to draw you in, and then they're designed to keep you in. And that's what makes them good games. That's what makes them fun. But that does mean that there is a, a, almost an addictive element to them. Um, and children in particular really can need help 
to cope with that and to regulate their their engagement with the games. Now, this survey underlines essentially what we have already probably known ourselves on the basis of anecdotal information and what we pick up uh, and have been picking up over the past number of years or whatever. But we still have a, have an issue around an increase in those engaging in it and the pos- and the consequences of them engaging in it. So where do we stop it? We can't ban it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really think, you know, games are here to stay and they're going to grow and they're going to be, you know, there's going to be more of them. And that's not going to change. Really, the way that the, the solution is in how we engage with them and how we help our children to engage with them. Um, I'd, I'd strong, you know, my, my suggestion for all parents would be, firstly, take an interest in the games your children are playing. Watch them with them. Maybe try playing them yourselves. And um, if you can, engage with the games, not to judge, but to learn more about them. Don't be surprised when you see that there are negative elements to the games, but instead help your children to recognise those and then help your children to manage them, particularly their time and their regulation of their emotions that, that, that you know, that they experience after playing the games. How much blame should we lay at the door of COVID for seeing the figures, not just in the likes of gaming, but in the likes of TikTok and other online entertainment channels mm-hmm. being increased? Was, was there serious yeah, questions th- to be asked there? I, well, I think so. You know, COVID was a profound experience for all of us. And, you know, the, the isolation that we all experienced, but particularly children who, you know, would have wanted to be out with their friends, but maybe couldn't be. Um, and for many of us, we found online community. We found ways of engaging and uh, communicating with each other online. And to be honest, that helped us get through the time. It was a, a saving factor in, in many ways. But it certainly propelled us into, you know, online trends, online ways of engaging with others that, you know, they were happening anyway, but were much slower. Is there any reason when you were carrying out this survey that you didn't look at the impact, for example, TikTok is having on, mm-hmm. on, on younger people? Because that has grown phenomenally. And I would suggest since COVID. Now, it's important to stress as well, it's not just children who are engaging in it. It's adults. Is there any reason you didn't take that into consideration? Um, well, there's certain themes that have come up over the years that we've been engaged in in, in our uh, schools programme. And gaming in particular was one of them. So this year our focus was specifically on gaming, which is why social media like TikTok didn't uh, particularly come into this year's survey. But certainly, you know, we've seen TikTok balloon and particularly the TikTok trends would be similar in their you know, they're, they're very engaging. They're supposed to be quite fun in a, you know, a kind of a, a silly, fun sort of a way. Um, but they, they're, they're yeah, it's, it's, it's become a huge phenomenon. And I, I, I am aware, and, and would like to say, I know there has been a, sadly, a, a tragedy today where someone has lost their life. So uh, I... I yeah, that, and and that's just, you're absolutely right. That's... Concept. That's in relation to, Gardy, they're investigating if a teenage girl died after taking part in a yeah. viral so-called media challenge. And I think that may have been on TikTok. And that's, that was a 14-year-old girl. But th- there's one other point that I just want to, to raise with you. And it says, children said that gaming was fun, allowing them to connect with their peers. Big question mark over peers. Who are they? Who are they engaging with? Is there anything nefarious going on with the individuals they're connected with? Do they know them? All these questions need to be asked and understood. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Those are key questions. 
Uh, and in many cases, they are their peers, they're their classmates or their friends. Um, it, it probably varies significantly depending on which games they're talking about. You know, some games really only allow you to connect with your close friends, your peers, people that you've already sort of vetted and, and made, you know, made a connection with. Other games just allow you and pitch you up against random, you know, just, just other people out there. Um, and therefore, you could be communicating with strangers. And of course, anytime you communicate with strangers online, you don't know who they are. Um, you only know what they're telling you about themselves. So in some cases, it's probably fine. You know, it very much is a game designed for children who play with close friends and only close friends. Uh, other games, then you know, you need to be more cautious about who it is that you might be interacting with online. Richard Phillips, Assistant Director of Children's Services with Barnardos, thank you for joining us. Just before we go to a break, I want to get to a couple of your comments uh, because I don't want to leave you this morning without getting to them. And this was in relation to Nolene Blackwell and the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. We had a conversation with earlier on in the programme. Phil says he was listening with interest to the interview with Nolene and he thinks the main problem in Irish society is a lack of respect for other people. People seem to be of the opinion these days that they can say or do whatever they want to or act in whatever way they want to. And Philip blames the influence of social media for that. He sees these brave keyboard warriors trolling and disrespecting people online every day. And unfortunately, they are now transferring it into real life. When it comes to teaching our young people about respect for others, Andy thinks the groundwork has to be done at home with parents and then followed up in schools and with other community mentors. Basic things like good manners and social niceties should be drummed into kids from a very early age. Kevin wasn't surprised to hear the high numbers of people in both sexes who have experienced harassment in some form. There's a general lack of respect and bizarre sense of entitlement in today's society that leads people to believe they can act in whatever way they want to, no matter how inappropriate it is. With more of your comments, we'll get to them before we leave you. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, landlords could pay less tax on rental income in an effort to persuade them to stay in the market under proposals put forward in advance of budget talks intensifying for the remainder of the week. One proposal circulated by the Department of Housing is a distinct income-based approach, according to a source, with knowledge of those discussions, which could entail a lower rate of tax or increased exemptions for landlords. Joining us this morning is Mary Conway, Chair of the IPOA, the Irish Property Owners Association. Mary, good morning. Thanks for joining us. I presume you're probably a little bit more optimistic than you were when we last spoke a number of weeks ago around possible measures in this budget for landlords. Do you think it will happen? If only, if only. Um, We haven't had any kind of feedback really as to what's happening. Um, I know the the rental room 14,000 was um, thrown out there as a suggestion for landlords, um, I suppose it's better than nothing, but it's putting landlords then on a party with people who rent a room on, uh, on a rent room in their own house. Um, and it's a very different market because um, people who rent a room in their house are not regulated, they're not subject to the terms of the RTB. Um, and in a lot of cases, people are using it to help the mortgage, but um, landlords are regulated and if you make anything over in the current system, if you make any, even one cent over the 14,000, you're taxed totally on it. So let's see what happens. We've asked for um, a cut in the rate of tax. Um, Universal social charge came in as a temporary measure seven years ago and it's still in place as the PRSI. So 
let's see what happens on Budget Day. We're not overly confident at the moment. Just on that rent-to-room initiative that was floated by the government, is it not my understanding that there was a caveat with that for landlords that it must be designated for student accommodation if you were to uh, avail of that 14000 or did I get it completely wrong? No, it can be to anybody. And then the other thing that happened last year was that if you lived in a, um, a house, you know, a council, a house that was provided for social housing, that you could also um, rent a room and get rent in that way. So the system is just a little bit all over the place at the moment. Um, and Just so on that, on that, do you agree that they... Uh, should be allowed those living in in social housing be allowed to participate in that scheme tax free. Well, it's a difficult one because um, they're probably you know is it going to displace somebody that should be in the social housing? Like there is an issue with social housing in that in some cases there are people in a three bed house that are looking for a transfer to a smaller home because their family have moved out and they'd like to give their home to another person, to a family. So, you know, there's just so many sides and strands to the housing. Okay, Mary, let me then just ask you, um, a lot of landlords will be keeping their powder dry just for the moment to see what comes out of the budget. Now, we have seen a rush by the majority of landlords to leave the market because they think it's probably prudent from an economic point of view that they paid a certain price, they're getting that money back and they want to cut their losses and run. If we don't see what you would consider to be reasonable and acceptable measures coming from the budget, do you anticipate that we'll see a greater number leaving the market? Unfortunately, we do, because we know from our members that um, we have polled, and we have approximately 2,000 members, 74 to 78% of them said they would stay in the market if there were better tax treatments for landlords. You see, I think a lot of people are under the perception that most landlords don't have mortgages and they're not impacted by the cost of living. Um, a lot of landlords have mortgages, possibly on interest only, and over the last year they've seen their mortgage interest rates go up and um, inflation has gone up, insurance, um, home repairs, everything else, whereas in most cases rents are capped at 2%. So a lot of landlords are actually subsidising their own tenants in, in in their properties at the moment, and that's why they're getting out of the market. What do you say to the notion that's been expressed time and again that landlords are nothing but rack renters who squeeze every last penny out? And time and again we see, you know, the data coming out to tell us that rents are increasing at a, at a rate of nuts every quarter. Um, I don't think that's a fair assumption. I would know landlords who have... Um, very low rents. They haven't put up the rents over the years because they've got tenants and they're happy to keep them there. And you know they might be older landlords. They don't have as many repayments as younger landlords. Um, but the other thing is, and and this seems to not come out, there is a two percent rent cap, so landlords can't put up the rents. The rents that are high are the new rents that are coming to market, and we know from the figures of people borrowing that there are actually very few new landlords coming to the market. I think we worked out there was probably 350 landlords across the country because of the borrowings last year. So, you know, it's the institutional investors that have the nice properties in the nice parts of Dublin City that are coming in with high rents, and then that's skewing the data for everybody else.
OK, we leave it there. Mary Conway, Chair of the IPOA, the Irish Property Owners Association. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I want to get to all your comments. I'm not going to leave till we get through all those because put some time uh, in order to put them together for us. Margaret says, Alan, we don't have a choice. We have to stop using fossil fuels and the government has to help us to do it. It's about our children and our grandchildren. The planet won't cope if we keep depleting an already stressed ozone layer. Energy prices. Maureen says, thank God it hasn't been too cold over recent weeks, so she hasn't had to put on her heating. But she knows she'll have to do it pretty soon and she's terrified at what it will cost. So much so that she's been stocking up her own brand foods at the shop like soup, beans, rice and pasta because she wants to have a stockpile come winter when she'll have to be spending what little she has on fuel rather than food. And I wager that's probably a story you will hear from so many people in the coming months. Social media. Noel purposely bumped into a teenager on the street the other day who was completely engrossed in his phone and had no awareness of his surroundings. Noel says he did uh, did it to make a point and to bring this young fella back into the real world. You see it all the time. Youngsters walking around the place, heads down, scrolling and texting and not interacting with each other or even being aware of their own safety in some cases. He's seen youngsters nearly walk out into traffic because they're watching their phone rather than the road. Noel says he worries for the future generations because they will have no social skills whatsoever and will not be able to communicate with others. Jim Rang to compliment all of those involved in yesterday's record drug seizure. It sounds like it was a very dangerous situation, especially given the weather conditions and credit has to be given to everyone who took part. It's great to see success like this because it sends a real message to the criminals involved. And that drug seizure again, Mary says she wasn't even aware that we had an elite army ranger wing in this country, but she's very glad that we do after seeing the success of their operation yesterday. Drugs are the biggest scourge in Irish society. They're destroying the lives of countless people and tearing countless families apart. To see these drug barons take a hit like the one they experienced yesterday is music to her ears. Thank you for all your comments. We must leave it there. We're back with you again same time tomorrow, a little bit after nine. Until then, from me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.